Welcome, Pastor Tim. Sir? The cord is caught. Okay. Last Thursday, I conducted what, for me at least, was a very interesting study uh, concerning forgiveness. Thought I would uh, compare the frequency of the verses in the Old Testament concerning forgiveness with the verses in the New Testament concerning forgiveness. And here's what I found. My Bible has 1,334 pages. And on those pages, I could find 58 verses that spoke of forgiveness. That means that less than one out of 25 pages, in my Old Testament at least, says something about forgiveness. Now that's less than 4% of the pages in the Old Testament speak of forgiveness. Not only that, I found that of those 58, 56 refer to God's forgiving us, having to do with an animal sacrifice or whatever. Only two spoke of forgiveness between humans, and none of those were commands. One was when Joseph's brothers came to him and said, Forgive us for selling you into slavery. The other one was when Abigail came to David and said, Forgive me and my husband and our family for what we have done to you and your servants. But I could not find a single verse in the Old Testament. There might be one, but I couldn't find it, that exhorted humans to forgive one another. In my Bible in the New Testament, there are 396 pages. And I thought it was interesting the exact number of verses in the New Testament that speak of forgiveness is the very same number in the Old Testament, 58. And yet that means one page out of every seven or 14% of the pages in the New Testament contain a verse concerning forgiveness. Not only that, of the 58, 13 are commands for us to forgive one another. That means that the New Testament has 3.5 times the emphasis of forgiveness as does the old and also then contains a tremendous strong encouragement and command for us to forgive one another. You know, indeed, that's one of the striking differences between the Old and the New Testament. Not all, but a lot of the Old Testament is a record of nations and individuals avenging themselves upon their victims. The, the Old Testament, therefore, law provided not only prescriptions but proscriptions controlling how people could deal with one another when their heart was filled with a desire for vengeance. For instance, the code of the vendetta is really as old as the human race. And in the vendetta, if you kill me, one of my sons is obligated to find you and kill you. And then one of your sons is obligated to find one of my sons and kill him. And on and on it goes. And so you end up with these feuds like the Hatfields and the McCoys, which uh, we're familiar with in America, but God put an end to that. He said, if some man kills another man, 
We're going to have three cities of refuge, and we're going to build special highways so people can easily travel to those cities of refuge. And if someone kills another, he is to hurriedly get on that highway and head to a city of refuge so the avenger of blood, the one who is going to be obligated to practice the vendetta, cannot get to him and kill him. And then once he is there, the Old Testament says the congregation, I assume it would mean some sort of a city council, will look into the situation. Now, it, it illustrates, say, a man is in the woods chopping down a tree, and the head flies off the axe and hits another man in the head and kills him. That man's son then will try to find and kill the man who was wielding the axe, but that man flees to a city of refuge. They hear the story and they say this was innocent, it was not murder, therefore stay in the city and you'll be safe. But, and it describes various things that are really murder, lying in wait, ambush, so on. If you killed a man, you really murdered him, then the avenger of blood can come and take your life and it's over, but no longer Hatfield, McCoy, ongoing vendetta. The Old Testament is filled with things like that. Also the limitation, three times in the Old Testament we read eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, if you put out my eye, I cannot in vengeance kill you. Now you can put out my eye, but that's all you can do. You see, equality, the limitation on how vengeance can be exercised. The Code of Vendetta, we see those prescriptions and proscriptions in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. To imprecate means to invoke a curse or to invoke evil upon someone. And that's why we have 14 psalms in the Old Testament that we call imprecatory psalms. They're psalms that are songs to God. They are prayer songs to God, pleading with God to wreak havoc upon one's enemies. Imprecatory psalms. Usually they are written in response to the atrocities that Either God's people or holy places have suffered. But they're prayer songs in that way. Some are David's pleas. Oh God, please do this to my enemies. Now if you were alive in World War II as I was, and if you were old enough in World War II to understand what was going on as I was, you would understand the stakes that were in place for Israel in that time. And as we face some of the darkest evil in all of human history, it was not unusual for us to have prayer meetings and read one of these psalms, the imprecatory psalms. And because I have been there, I read those psalms with that understanding, not just personal vengeance, but, oh God, in that way, but be that as it may, one clear difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is this. The New Covenant is filled 
with the doctrine of forgiveness. David, who was the first true Messiah of Israel, cried out for vengeance upon his enemies. But the true eternal Messiah, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, as he hung upon the cross, naked, mocked by those who were his enemies, being cursed, we can view our Lord in that shameful position, looking down and then to the best he can, lifting his eyes to heaven, and instead of saying, God, bring a host of angels and kill them all, oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The difference between the old covenant and the new And one of the clearest is this. The Old Testament is full of blood, justice, restitution, vengeance. The New Testament is a covenant of forgiveness. Freely given. I recently heard an interview with an author who had written a book on happiness. Now, I got in the... It began to listen to the interview after it had already begun, so I was not able to clearly identify who or what this man's profession was. sounded as if he were a psychologist or sociologist, but he and his co-author had interviewed many, many, many people and then written down the things that made people happy and the things that people had tried but didn't make them happy. An interesting thing is his co-author was a Jew. Now, I didn't hear clearly, but I think he said an Orthodox Jew. And he said as we studied this data and as we looked at people, he and I really had a little different perspective because I could see clearly that one source of happiness was the ability to forgive. My Jewish fellow author, he said just frankly didn't see it that way. He was still tied to the Old Testament concept. This morning, let's just spend some time thinking about forgiveness in this New Testament doctrine. First of all, we are forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, compassionate, Forgiving one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. And it would seem to me that one of the main problems we have with forgiveness, forgiving other people, is our innate inability to comprehend the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In other words that for which we have been forgiven. Some of us, it's just hard to realize that we're so sinful and how odious that sin is to God. And so because of this, we're just not able to fully appreciate the magnitude 
of the forgiveness that our Lord has extended to us personally. And I think this is especially true of those of us who are just guilty of, shall we say, white-collar sins. You understand what I mean? <laughs> Drug dealers, robbers, rapists, killers. When one of these comes to Jesus Christ and receives forgiveness, there usually is overwhelming gratitude. Oh, God, look what I have been. And you still reached down and took hold of me. Deep regret and overwhelming gratitude. We think of Paul, who said it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus died to save sinners. King James says, of whom I am chief. Many versions say of whom I am foremost of all. What was he talking about? You remember for many years, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, was a killer. He went about finding Christians, arresting them, hauling them into jail. And then he said, when the decision was being made what to do with them, he said, I always voted for the death penalty killed them. He had hatred in his heart toward Christians. And then one day, traveling to Damascus to round up a bunch more, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And can you imagine what it must have been like in those three days as he was in Damascus? He was blind. He was fasting. God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And then God sent Adonias to him to tell him what to do. Why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And for the rest of his life, he could say, Jesus Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief. God had taken a man who was a killer and made him a saint. How beautiful. And those whom God has plucked out of such a life usually are overwhelmed with gratitude. But those of us who have always been, quote, good people, struggle struggle with the concept that God has forgiven us of that which could really damn us to hell. One day, a Pharisee approached Jesus and said, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner. And so Jesus agreed. This is in Luke 7, 34 and following. And as they were reclining at the table, a woman came in and she had with her an alabaster vial of perfume. And you remember the way that meals were eaten in that time was there would be a low table and around the table couches and you lean on your left arm and ate with your right and your feet extended out as this woman came and knelt before 
the feet of Jesus and began to pour the precious perfume upon his feet and wipe his feet with her hair. Pharisee said to himself, this man isn't a prophet. If he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. She's a whore. He wouldn't let her touch him. Of course, Jesus, being divine, could read the man's thoughts. Said, Simon, um, let me say something to you. Oh, go ahead, Rabbi. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 5,000 denarii, the other 50. Now, neither one of them was able to pay the man, and he finally looked at both of them, and his compassion said, forget the debts, they're gone. Now, ask, answer me, Simon. Which of the two would have the greatest love for the man who forgave them? Simon said, well, I suppose the one he forgave more. Jesus said, you've judged correctly. <laughs> you've judged correctly. Is it any surprise to us that those for whom God has reached into the very cesspools of society and pulled them into his arms have such great gratitude? But oh, what gratitude we also should have. Many of us are like the Pharisee described in Matthew 18, 21 and following. Jesus said one time, there was a king and he decided to call all of his slaves to give account. So one by one they came, the various ones had borrowed money from him. And there was a man that came before him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now listen, that is 160,000 years of wages. Think of that. That's a big debt, wasn't it? How did you ever get that far in debt? 160,000 years of wages. The king said, pay me. The man said, I can't. You can't. Will you let me make payments, installment plan? No, I'm going to sell you and your wife and your children and everything you have, and at least I'll get as much as I can. A man fell before him. Oh, please, master. Please, master, don't do that. The master's heart was touched with compassion. And he said, I forgive your debt. That man who had been forgiven 160,000 years of wages went out and met a fellow who owed him 100 days wages. And he grabbed him by the throat and said, pay me. Pay me. The man said, I, I, I can't. Give me time. But he didn't do it. And this is interesting. He threw the man in jail and said, you have to stay there till you pay back. What? How can a man in jail get money to pay a debt? I don't know. <laughs> well, when the master heard about it, 
he summoned the man, and this is what he said, you wicked slave, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? His Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him, and obviously he could never pay. Then Jesus said this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? Some of us who are Pharisees, we falsely see our debts as small. Perhaps we love God less because we do not comprehend the magnitude of sin, regardless of how it's manifested. Maybe some of us need to get alone with God begin to plead with him to show us how horrible our sins are and the consequence of that sin is hell. Everybody in this room is damned to hell unless God extends his grace and forgiveness. Praise the Lord he's done it. Dante, in his Divine Comedy, began with the first section, which was Inferno, the Italian, which means hell. And in Dante's Inferno, there are various levels of hell, and some places are hotter than others, and there are various tortures on people that fit the sins that they have committed. Is that what hell is going to be like? Well, there may be hotter places in hell for rapists and child abusers, murderers, I, I don't know, but this I do know. If you're a liar, if you're envious, if you're jealous, you'll have the same thing as drug dealers and murderers and slanders. You're going to hell, except for the fact God has offered divine forgiveness. And because of that, Jesus Christ said, we must forgive one another from the heart or else we suffer those horrible consequences. Romans 5, 5 through 9, you know, people talk about what their favorite verse is and so many say John 3, 6, 316, for me, this has been the passage that for years has been my favorite. Hope does not disappoint. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Isn't that beautiful? We can testify to that, can't we? We have a love that we know used to not be there, but God's given it to us. While we were yet helpless, 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 at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
One will hardly die for a righteous man, some fellow that has it all together. <laughs> Though perhaps for a good man, a good man he'll give the neighbor his shirt. Some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, absolutely nothing to commend us to him. Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We are saved from the wrath of God through him. And for those of us have known the blessing of that forgiveness and we walk with Jesus and yet in our imperfection we fail and our conscience is stirred and we grieve. Aren't we thankful for 1 John 1, 7 to 9? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in it. Remember, he's writing this to Christians. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I find it beneficial to sit quietly before God more than once a week and ask the Holy Spirit to be the auditor of my life. And show me Show me those things in my life of which I am ignorant. For he's not Lord, and thus it is sin. And I confess it, I beg for and receive forgiveness, because I have confessed it. Isn't that wonderful? Now here's an aside. Many of us have trouble forgiving ourselves. Isn't that true? We have trouble forgiving ourselves. God's forgiven us, so we're forgiven, but we have to learn to forgive ourselves. Sometimes we think we're greater than God. God's forgiven. God has washed away the sin. We need to let it go and walk in freedom of what the Lord has given to us. God knows something about us that we have trouble recognizing ourselves. Psalm 103, 10 to 14 says, God has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so on has removed our sins. And it says, he himself knows our frame. He is remindful that we are but dust. <laughs> we need to remember that, that we are not some person who has the power to overcome everything. We don't. And so we seek and receive forgiveness. We're frail. And that doesn't excuse us. But God forgives us because he knows we are frail. And so be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another. As God has forgiven you in Christ. Now the stakes are high. Remember the model prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, so on and so on. 
and then forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. And then it goes on and then comes back to that. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Then leaps down to verse 15. Matthew 6, if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. And remember the warning we read earlier in Matthew 18, 35. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How can I do that? Okay, I forgive you, but there's something inside. Let me tell you a lesson God taught me many, many years ago. And certainly I do not put myself forth as an example, for I struggle as much as anyone. There was a particular elder that was opposing me many years ago, and he, we had different ideas, at least, about which way the church should go. And that man stood in front of me, got right up in my face and shook his fist and said, I will fight you, I will fight you, I will fight you. (laughs) Oh, he was loud. (laughs) And he did. He had money. And all I had was the power of persuasion and I believe the Holy Spirit. He was a good man, still is. And he would use his money in various ways that would tend to get folks to side with him. And I remember sitting in my study crying out to God, Lord, I forgive him, but I can't forgive him from my heart. Oh, help me, God. Now, I don't know if the Holy Spirit brought to mind what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, or if the Holy Spirit just brought it to my heart, but this came forth, pray for the man, pray for the man, and I began praying for him. And I began to pray, oh God, I pray you will bless this man. Oh God, I ask you to bless his wife and his children. I ask you to bless his business. And then I began to imagine gold coins falling out of heaven and going down the chimney of his house. The very thing he was using against me was money. And I began to pray for God to prosper him and bless his money. Tremendous change happened in my heart when I began doing that. I want to tell you today, that man has a special place in my heart. I love him. I love him. I love him. But you see, I should have known to do that, shouldn't I? Because Jesus said... In the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 7, 27 to 28, I say to you who hear, <laughs> love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And it makes a difference <laughs> in our heart when we do it. Again, an aside, this doesn't mean we play the part of a fool. If I touch a hot stove and it burns me, I don't forgive it and touch it again. <laughs> and if someone has defrauded me, someone has lied to me, someone has deceived me, yes, I forgive them. But it will take a long time before that person can ever rebuild trust. So I may forgive and harbor no grudge, but I don't play the part of a fool. And that's important, I think. When we seek vengeance, we're choosing to occupy a role that belongs only to God. Romans 12, 17 and following, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. By the way, I recently uh, online was reading about a man who was advising contemporary preachers. And he said, one thing you want to do is avoid reading very much scripture in the pulpit. People get bored. Uh, you lose their attention. Be bored. <laughs> Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. <laughs> it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So doing you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians, Paul, writing to the church that was under persecution, said this, After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And speaking of his own life in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. It is important that we do not choose to occupy the role of God and wreak vengeance. We are to be forgiving, loving, blessing, and whatever retribution is to be made, that's God's role, not ours. Closing, let me tell you a couple of stories. Illustration of the blessings you know, sometimes you almost wish somebody do something mean against you because it's such joy to forgive. <laughs> I can't say the exact year, but it would have been sometime between 1975 and 1980. A very prosperous businessman from Sepulpa came. It was, he had friends who had suggested he come and spend time chatting with me. Man was addicted to horse racing. 
traveled all over the country for horse races. And we talked about his life and why he needed that high and all the things that were involved. In World War II, he had been a paratrooper, a man built sort of like Steve Sperber. By the way, there was a time I wanted to be a paratrooper, but you had to weigh 150 pounds, and I couldn't get over 130. I now qualify. <laughs> and he had been, his group had been dropped behind the lines as the armies were advancing, and he, along with others, were captured and put into prisoner of war camp, concentration camp, whatever you would call it. There was one particular guard that just delighted in being cruel to these men. Every opportunity he had, he poured cruelty out upon them and mocked them. And so he said, two of the other prisoners and I determined, and we knew it was going to happen when the war was over, if they didn't kill us before we were released. We were going to find that man and we were going to torture him and kill him in the most painful manner we could devise. Indeed, they were released, the war was over, and they had several days before they were going to be transported out of the area. And the three of them set out to find this guard. They never found him. And so as that man sat in my study, he was still filled with anger, still filled with vengeance, still filled with hatred, and that poison in him was destroying his life. He could not forgive. How different <laughs> the story of Corey Ten Boom. You know this story. Some of you have read it. If you ever read the book, the Hiding Place, you know the story. If you've never read it, you ought to read it. If you ever read it, you ought to read it again. What a book. Hiding Place tells a story of Corey Ten Boom, her sister Betsy, and others in prison, especially Corey and Betsy, and all the tortures and the horrible things they went through. Betsy would keep saying, when the war is over, some way we need to do some ministry to these people. And Corey said, I was thinking about the prisoners, but Betsy was talking about the guards and those who whipped us and those who beat us. She sat there in such bondage. And Betsy got weaker and weaker, and finally, hours before she died, she said, when this is all over, we need to take a concentration camp. <laughs> and paint the walls green and yellow and put flower boxes with flowers. And all of those who have been cruel to us, bring them into this place that they might come to learn to know the love of God. But Betsy died. Now, those who were Corey Ten Boom's aged were scheduled to be taken to the gas chambers and killed. Two days before that, a clerk made a mistake. 
and put on her papers, released. And although it took a while for the release to happen, she was released. And the war ended shortly thereafter, and she then traveled around the world, United States, Europe, different places, even into Germany, talking about the love of Christ and the need for forgiveness. Let me read this from the closing next to last page of her book. The first part leads up to this, all this horror, and then the last two pages speak of these beautiful things. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensburg. By the way, they made all the women take their clothes off, they walked naked, and the SS men mocked them. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. Suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and my dear sister Betsy's pain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine and I, who had preached so often to the people of Blomendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me. Oh, help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I breathed a slight prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then I took his hand, and the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness anymore than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving each other, just as Christ also has forgiven you.
Thank you, Jim, for that message of forgiveness.